Hello and welcome to the Body Electric Podcast, episode 22. Uh, today's May 10th, 2017. Uh, my name is Nathan Hiltz, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be here with another podcast. Uh, my special guest is a really great guitarist named Joey Goldstein. Uh, he's had a really great career uh, since the 1970s uh, in Toronto uh, playing music, uh, studied down in the U.S. at Berklee College during that golden era when all the big famous heavies were there. And uh, the, the guy's just got a ton of technique and lots of great ideas, so I think you'll really get a lot out of this uh, listening to this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about me, you can visit my website at www.nathanhiltz.com. And I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, it's easy to find, so feel free to leave me a message there. And uh, enjoy the show. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. We're on. We're on. Oh, no, we're on. Oh, my God. Now I'm nervous. This is going out to the internet, to the the whole world, Joey. To the peeps. How you doing, man? I'm all right. Good to yeah, see you. All. Shake my hand here. I don't think we did that you. yet. This is the first time you and I have ever played together. So. Is it really? I guess it is. Guitar pants yeah. with the guitar guys at the end That's of the cool. year. I saw you playing with, was it Dave Akapinti or was it Trevor one time? Oh, that, that thing, that, the hang of the house. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was fun. I've seen you play live and you play great. So this oh, man. Thank you. Just don't cut me at every turn. and we'll I won't cut you. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's nice to see your beautiful home. This place is a nice house, open yeah. place. Yeah. You know? Really keep it nice and organized. Just so you know, I had nothing to do with the, with the rental. It was like that when I bought it. So right. I'm not that artsy. What's this neighborhood called? It's Eglinton and. Uh, uh, well, on kind of the thing? other side of Marlins, called Forest Hill. Oh, okay. But yeah, yeah. Uh, technically, we're in York. York, the, okay. The, yeah. There must be great food around here, like. Uh, like well, actually, there, there may be on Eglinton. Yeah. I hardly ever go to any of those restaurants. I'm a, I'm like a subway guy. I've, I've managed. I'm I'm the new Jared. Okay. Without, uh, without, 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 without the first stuff. Okay, good. Yeah. Awesome. We uh, need we need new Jared. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I'm. Uh, you know, I usually eat at home, or if if I have to eat out, it's usually kind of fast food stuff just to get out of the house. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, it's nice to hang. I mean, we've never hung before, so this is cool. You yeah. Know? And I, I was thinking. You say that now. I was thinking that on the way over. I'm like, I don't really even know. Are, are you a Toronto local? Or are you? Yeah, I'm oh, from here. Yeah. Nice. Where did you grow uh, up? You, I grew up basically just down the street. You're from okay. Toronto too, aren't you? Uh, no, I'm from Nova Scotia, actually. Nova Scotia. Oh. I've been here since 99, so I feel like a Toronto person now. You know, Halifax would for the Raptors someplace else. Uh, Halifax and Lunenburg, actually, okay. when I was younger. You know? yeah. It's only out there once with a, with a show band. Oh, yeah? Way, way back in the, I guess it was the late 70s, early 80s. Wow. Was that when you were coming up? Kind Have I come up? You, you're up. You're up. <laughs> you're far up, Joey. You're I've been doing it a long time, but it doesn't yeah. feel like, a, like it's really a rise. Um, right. More like a steady decline. Um, uh, no, I really, the first professional gig I got out of Berkeley was with Cheryl and Robbie Ray, which were, they were two really good singers uh, and entertainers, and uh-huh. uh, they had, I think, just finished a CBC show before I got the gig with them, and then when I was finished with them, they had another CBC show, so they were kind of well-known in Canada entertainment circles. Um, the, the trip out, uh, out east was kind of interesting because we played a bunch of stuff in Toronto and there was a place called Ports of Call, which was, uh, where the Summerhill, near the, where the Summerhill subway station is. And they had like 10 clubs or something in there. And we had played this club on Saturday night. Um, and the next gig was on Monday night in Mon- in Fredericton. Well, so we drove basically 40 hour, 48 hours straight in the middle of winter. This was like January 1st, uh, oh to get out there. God. So I spent about a month, uh, in the Maritimes, playing various places with this with the show band. Wow! I got to meet who was the big blues guy in Halifax at the time. Um, big fat heavy guy. Oh man, I don't know. Dutch Dutch Mason. Dutch Mason. Oh yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And so you get to see him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, you know, so I did a little bit of hanging. Wow. Uh, Whole month of touring. Uh, but out I didn't meet that meet that many musicians out there. The, the one thing I remember about Dutch was there was a jam session at this club on one of the main drags, um, and I you know I sat in and everything it was fun just playing blues. He had some young guy. Uh, sit in and I get, think the guy was actually on a chair um, sitting in and he wasn't sounding very good and Dutch actually went over <laughs> picked him up on the chair <laughs> took him off the stage wow man so that, that's just an interesting memory cool. so was that some of your first gigs there with, with that with that, that was my first gig because oh, okay. uh, when I was at Berkeley I wasn't uh, I wasn't strong enough player to be doing any gigging yet right um, my roommate uh, who's Ted Rosnick who's actually ended up being the biggest jingle producer in Toronto um, uh, was a was a good drummer, uh, and he was doing some gigs. He actually had a a, a band that Mike, uh, John Schofield used to not Schofield, uh, Mike Stern used to sub in. Uh, Ted used to jam with Schofield a little bit and with Mike Stern. So I met some of those guys uh, through Ted at the time. Wow. 
Uh, Ted was Ted was uh, gigging fairly regularly in Boston, but my first professional gig when I got back to town was with this weird uh, older singer. Um, uh, you probably don't know who Tommy Oki is. Maybe you know Kimio. No, I don't. Kimio, his son. Uh, but there was, uh, and you probably, do you know John T? The John T, player? yeah, of course. So yeah. there was kind of a crowd of people, um, uh, and Terry Logan was, was part of that crowd. Terry Logan, John T, um, uh, Tommy Oki, uh, and they kind of hooked me up with this weird singer, and that's how I joined uh, the union, but that didn't last for very long. Ted was in that band, too. Right. So that was my first, prof actually, no, my first professional gig was, I might have been the leader, and we played the Westlaw Tavern which is Whoa. at Western Road in Lawrence, and it was me and Ted and, I think, Shelly Berger. Wow, um, and nice. And was Lauren on the gig? No. Me Lauren. and Ted and Lofsky, because I used to play with Lauren when I was a kid. Oh, cool. Um, no, it was somebody else. Uh, at any rate, mm. it, was, it was this really divey club, and they had a pregnant stripper uh, with no teeth, and they had these two trainer columns. And whenever we would play, the the bikers in the in the club would come and turn the columns so they were pointing at us. So that was my first professional gig. Wow, wow! I suppose that club's so long gone. I got started with a negative attitude towards the profession early on. <laughs> and what guitar were you playing back then? Oh, back then time? that would have been a Strat, I would guess. Right. Yeah. And would you have called yourself a jazz player at that time, or at that point, I probably already been out from school so I was trying to be interested in jazz but my whole thing wasn't really about trying to become a jazz player not until maybe I started studying with, with Matheny um, in my third year. Mm. Um, uh, at Berkeley I'd actually been avoiding the jazz guys as much as possible because I went there I was interested in progressive rock right. and I knew you had to be able to read and write music and be able to do that. Um, uh, so on that gig at the Westlaw, I was, you know, I, I was on my way to knowing how to play jazz, but it was all, jazz was always in the back burner. My whole thing was about becoming a professional musician. I, I just wanted to work playing the guitar. I didn't want to do anything else. I couldn't see myself doing anything else. And anything that would lead me towards uh, being able to look after myself playing the guitar mm. is, is what I was after. Right, right. Um, and I always thought of jazz as being kind of on the back burner. It's something I was deeply interested in. I always wanted to know how to do it well. But I was, I've never really been trying to become a jazz player mm. um, uh, or a jazz artist. Uh, yeah. I started calling my, my Facebook artist page Jazz Guitarist Joey Goldstein. And then I thought, well, maybe I should back that off and just be Guitarist Joey Goldstein. Uh, but they wouldn't let me change it. <laughs> So it's still jazz guitarist. So you're stuck. I'm stuck. Facebook, well, yeah. Facebook will be gone one yeah. day soon anyway. Uh, so I'm just lucky. I'm lucky that, that the better jazz players around here still uh, tolerate me enough to let me play in their bands and, yeah. and stuff like that. And every once in a while, I, I get off my ass and write some tunes and go out and play some music. But, you know, trying to have it, maybe what I'm talking about is a career. I never thought about having a career in jazz. Right. Because every time I made any forays into that, it just seemed so far-fetched and so hard. Mm -hmm. And I'm basically kind of... Uh, uh, not that ambitious a person. I was going to say lazy, but that's not necessarily true. I don't want it as, as much as a lot of other guys, but right. I love to play, and I just keep playing. So yeah, that well, that seems like a common sentiment is that you know if you can be good at jazz, you can kind of play anything. That's sort of that's what they try to sell you, I think, at the yeah. jazz schools. Yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily true. Right, right. That's what, what I tell what I tell people along those lines is that if you can teach yourself to play jazz, you can probably teach yourself to play anything because the discipline that you you learn by doing that can can be applied to anything. That's my take on it. Mm. But just because you know how to play jazz, it's not going to make you sound good in James Taylor's band, or it's not going to make you sound good in uh, I don't know why I'm using this reference ten years after or right. a band like that. You know yeah, I mean? yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it might give you some technical knowledge that you can approach those gigs differently. Mm. But, being but your head being and your ears player, and your heart has to be in, in a lot of ways. Being a jazz player gets in the way of being a pop musician. Right. A lot of the guys uh, who, who are great jazz players, you get them on a pop session, they don't know what the hell to do. Totally. Yeah. And I, vice versa, obviously. I actually feel very uncomfortable playing pop music. You know, yeah. when I have one thing to lay down, uh, and or like lots of space and that kind of thing, I feel nervous. You know, I I like to always have something to do. You know, and when you're improvising, you can kind of do stuff all the time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> jazz is we like to fill in the space. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, totally. Yeah, it's uh, and these days there aren't any gigs anyway, so it doesn't right. really matter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so just play some jazz and tour Yeah, well, why don't we play something? All right, let's, so we're gonna do Con Alma, right? Yeah, let's do it. Um, on a good day, I play this fairly well, so let's do it. You do it swinging or with a like twelve eight or? I do it uh, Latin and bridge swing. Okay, but I, but you know, like a straight eighth or the or the twelve eight, like uh, kind of like a like an Afro Cuban kind of thing. Okay, sweet.
Um, uh, all right. Great. I haven't played this in duet, I think, ever with anybody. Let's see what happens. All right, let's try it. If we mess it up, I'll just stop the okay. tape. And uh, so I'm going to play the head, I guess. Uh, well, I'm going to play the A sections, you're going to play the bridge, right? Sure. Okay. Uh,
That's kind of my thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe because I have no ideas on no no good ideas on chords with stationary harmony. I like to be playing, you know, right. here's a new chord, here's a new chord. Well, you'll have to have your modal, you'll your modal, you know, style. In the, when you get into your sixties or seventies or something like that, just go to modal jazz or something. You know, I, I played modal on this stuff too. So uh, I'm one of the, you know, there's this whole argument in jazz ed about chord scales and their value and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Maybe it's because I was such a dolt when I was starting out, but I, I adopted that stuff like it was gospel when I was a kid, and I'm sticking and staying. Yeah. You know, uh, you know obviously I had to learn how to how to play off of chord tones and stuff at some point as well. Mm. Uh, but this whole thing in jazz ed about the evil of chord of a chord scale approach, I I just don't buy into it at all. But then again, it depends what you're trying to play. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm not as a traditional a player as a, as a lot of guys, so I can kind of see where they're coming from. But Mm. I'm steeped in chord scales, you know, when I work on a tune like this, uh, especially when I was starting out, it was get good on that chord, get good on that chord, get good on that chord, and then gradually find mm -hmm. ways to link them together. Right, right. And in that linking process, obviously, arpeggiation and, uh, you know, uh, target notes and all that kind of stuff comes into play. Yeah. Uh, but I couldn't have done all the more advanced work if I hadn't learned the scales really well. So it rides a lot, like all that yeah. stuff rides on the scales. Exactly. Right, right. Exactly. And you have a specific way that you teach uh, scales, right, to students? Uh, well, I try. You know, at, at Humber, they're only with me for a year, so I kind of cram as much of uh, the Joey Goldstein experience as I can. Because yeah. I think there's certain things that I'm teaching that a lot of people aren't teaching, uh, and maybe that they're not teaching specifically at that, at that school. Um, the stuff I learned from uh, Mick Goodrick, uh, about how to assimilate the, the William Levitt type fingerings mm. into your jazz playing. Um, I think uh, most people don't look at things no, that way. No, I don't because most people either. Most people abandon the Berkeley fingerings as soon as they get exposed to them. Uh, and Mick had a really cool way of relating all the intervallic stuff that you had to do uh, with arpeggios and the scales and stuff to position playing because you just keep your hand plopped in whatever interval you have to play. You just play the correct interval. Whether the fingering is good or not, um, might be questionable, but the idea is that you learn every possible fingering so that at some point you know what the good fingerings are. Right, right. So how many fingerings are there for the major scale? If you're doing William Levitt style position playing, there's 12 position fingerings 12 positions, that, right. are, that are movable, plus open position, so that's 13. If right. you want to include open position with the open string. So, um, uh, and most of my students don't get into the Levitt thing in the depth that they really need to to get anything out of it. So most of them probably come away thinking it's all bullshit anyways. Right. Um, but if, 
you know, at Humber, sorry, at Mohawk, I used to get students for all three years, mm-hmm. so I could kind of make my case as the years went on for for that particular right. method. That is kind of a crazy thing, you know. You have them for a year, and then they're then they're going to somebody else. Yeah. yeah, that's a great thing about Humber. I think it's also a bad thing. Yeah, because they never well. Ted tries to have some homogeneity in what he teaches in the master classes, but you know if uh, me and Ted were kind of up for the gig at the same time of, of being the head of the guitar department at mm. um, at Humber, Ted rightfully got the gig. Um, uh, but if I was doing it, uh, I'd I'd be a hard ass. I'd make everybody go through all all three Levitt books at mm-hmm. least for sure. Right. You know. Yeah. So at least there's a, um, a a standard that you can work from. But I can see the bullshit factor in that too. I can see how you know somebody who already knows how to play when they get to, to school, forcing them to do that, they're gonna hate that school. It's so complicated, eh, with all the different skill levels yeah. and stuff. You know, even within the classes and the ensembles, you know, half the kids are getting can be getting bored while the other half are like really getting challenged, overly challenged. Yeah. You know, so it's you really Remember see a, a good a job of balancing that. I think. Yeah. You know, there's great um, academic support. Guys, they when they tell out, me about sure. what they're doing in their ensembles, the intro guys, and going, whoa. Mm-hmm. It's usually pretty hard, you know. Oh yeah, totally. Um, so now you, this tune, you you would have played this with your trio. You had a gig recently. Yeah, we played the Emmett Ray, and uh, we played a few of my tunes. Um, I didn't really want to turn it into the Joey Golson trio, but that's kind of what it became. We'd been re- we'd been getting together informally just to play because uh, we were all bored. Who were the other musicians? In the uh, Scott Alexander was playing bass, and Vito Rezza on drums. Uh, Vito Rezza. Um, uh, but since I'm the soloist, uh, and, and the Invariably, it turns to whatever repertoire I want to play. Um, so I, it was fairly eclectic. We played five or six of my tunes. Uh, we played that monk tune I was talking about earlier. We played Con Alma. We played uh, Sweet Baby James. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was a, a little bit different. Usually, when I go out as, as a leader, it's all originals. Mm-hmm. But I haven't been writing much lately, and I, I figured maybe I should play some standards. And, and trios, kind of, well, how you like to play? Like, uh... actually, no. It's really unusual for me to play in a trio. Oh, okay. Um, uh, the last record I did was a, it was a saxophone quartet with, with Johnny Johnson. Jim Vidney was playing bass on that, but Vito on drums. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and even that's not my comfort zone. My comfort zone when I was coming up was a, basically a piano quartet with guitar, piano, bass, and drums. And I could always rely on the piano uh, uh, to fill in the things that I couldn't do harmonically myself. Um, I'm much more uh, concerned with trying to get my trio and my, my duo and my uh, mm. other type playing together. So Not enough pianos in this world to uh, to really make a go of that. <laughs> you know, none of the clubs have a real piano. Yeah, well, I, I was never one to mind playing with electric pianos. As a matter right. of fact, especially playing with Vito, we tend to get loud anyway. So right. um, if, uh, if an electric piano is not necessarily a bad thing. But, you know... As a leader, when I'm writing my own material, I, I lean heavily towards the fusion side of things. But I like to think of it as the type of fusion that's more in the tradition than other types of fusion. Let's say, uh, Spyro Gyra or, or, or bands mm. like that. So, right. every time I sit down to write music, that's what comes out. So that's what I play. Hmm. Right. So what's uh, what's like your favorite music? Like what are your influences? Like, uh... well, uh, when I was young, uh, you know, uh, well, the first big influence was my dad, obviously. Uh, he played uh, a baritone uke and used to sing with one of my older sisters who had a great voice and I kind of oh, really? wanted to fit in with them in their little social time so I figured out how to play some chords on the ukulele. Yeah. Um, at some point, I think when I was 12, he bought me uh, an acoustic guitar, an old Stella. Um, and my dad was in the army surplus business. It was kind of an interesting thing. Um, for my bar mitzvah, for my 13th birthday, he actually got me a Dan Electro double neck guitar. <laughs> it was wow. all aluminum. It had a bass on the bottom and a six string on the top, and the case was like this far off the floor, and I had to carry it around to like my friends' houses and stuff uh, like that, which was like you know I needed that. Uh, that's the coolest guitar. Do you so, have a photo of that, or do you have it? I put a Here's photo one. on my website of somebody else's version of the same guitar. Oh yeah, cool. uh, But the, but in that era, a lot of my a lot of my friends didn't think I was that cool. Of my music playing friends didn't think I was that cool, so I couldn't get in their little bands. Oh. But once I learned the bass solo for my generation, on the, on the ten, <laughs> my like, generation, yeah, they yeah. let me in the band. Okay, so the question was about musical oh, background yeah, yeah. and taste. So, uh, like so I started out with that, and then the Monkees was my first big uh, thing that I was deeply oh, into, man. even before the Beatles. I mean, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and all that stuff, and I was impressed, but. The monkeys just seemed so much hipper. Yeah. Um, I wanted to be Mike Nesmith for the longest time. Um, and then I had a very hip friend who actually used to live down the street from here uh, briefly. He moved in here maybe 10 years ago, and now he's moving out. 
but he lived across, he lived near me where I was growing up in Forest Hill. Um, Joffrey Clarfield, he ended up becoming an ethnomusicologist of some note. Hmm. Um, uh, and he hipped me to like Coltrane, Cannonball, Adderley, and Hendrix all at the same time in his basement. Me and Ted Rosnick used to go over there and hang out. And, and Joffrey was like the smartest kid that we knew about music. Um, I wasn't ready for Coltrane at the time because I think he was playing me uh, um, a Love Supreme and I just didn't kind of get it. Um, but Hendrix, you know, I glommed onto that. Mm. And the, and I was actually at that concert that uh, where Hendrix opened for the Monkees. Really? I was there to see the Monkees. That's cool. Yeah. But you got to see Hendrix. Yeah. So wow. I was, gradually I was getting into that kind of thing. Right. Uh, and then, you know, through the rest of most of uh, junior high and high school, I was uh, I was a dyed-in-the-wool rocker. I was into, you know, Beck, Hendrix, Clapton. Uh, my big guy, because he was faster, uh, was Alvin Lee. So, you know, when you're young, speed is, is the big deal. I've never checked out Alvin Lee, actually. Ten years after they had that song, yeah. I'm Going Home. Okay. I played a Woodstock. Right. Okay. So uh, that was my thing as a kid. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but me and Lauren Lofsky uh, and Ted uh, had this blues band together when we were kids, and we used to jam a lot together. We were called the Rancidity Blues Band, uh, and we played like two gigs, and I was the front man. I was, no. I was up singing. Were you singing? <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm getting close. We did like Grand, Grand Funk Railroad. Oh, know. yeah. Yeah. Oh, and any documents of that? There was a, a reel-to-reel tape, but it's long gone, I think. Somebody's, oh, yeah. that's too bad. Yeah. So and I had these two friends when we played the Forest Hill Junior High dance. Uh, I had these two friends who were uh, like doing a sports play-by-play, -play, and every time we finished the song, they'd go into the mic, and that's what rock and roll is all about. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in a garage band with Lauren Lofsky, yeah. Ted... Ted Rosnick. Ted Rosnick. Um, uh, the bass player, who's actually our bass player, passed away many, many years ago, Gerald, I forget his last name. But I was there was a crowd of Jewish musicians that we used to play together. Mm -hmm. Like if you went to Forest Hill, you knew everybody who played, yep. and then you'd branch out and see who's playing at McKenzie, who's playing at you know, all these other primarily Jewish schools. So there was me and a guy named Jamie Shear, who was a good rock guitar player. He's still playing professionally. Uh, Shelley Berger, Ted Rosnick, um, a friend of mine who's uh, had. Uh, a lot of success doing kind of uh, uh, electronica slide guitar. Ken Ram, he runs a thing called Euphoria. He was kind of part of the crowd. Um, uh, Lofsky. Uh, there was a guy named Steve Shayet who was like McKenzie's great uh, answer to um, Johnny Winter. Um, I don't think he's playing anymore. Uh, there were like, you know, 10, 12 of us, and we used to kind of hang out and play and right. cross pollinate. We used to do these jam sessions in Ted Rosnick's backyard, and all the neighbors would come. Uh, and it was like Woodstock. Right. Wow. So you've seen the, the Toronto change a lot over the years. Yeah, it's, it's like the music scene and, and all well, that. yeah, there's a you know there's a lot of sameness to it too. Right. Um, but yeah, I've been around a long time, and it, it's it's weird being this old now, looking back and remembering things that I uh, that uh, just how how long ago they are. You know, right. I think, I'm talking about things now that are like forty five to fifty years ago. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. And then Lauren and I both got, and Ted, uh, both got kind of serious about being professional musicians at the same time. Uh, mm -hmm. Around the same time, Lauren went off to York. Um, I went, me and Ted went off to Berkeley. Um, uh, like I said, at Berkeley, I, I was trying to avoid the jazz guys as much as possible because I just wasn't into it. But I kind of got fascinated by it by third year. Mm. Uh, and ever since then, I've just been trying to make a living and right. play some jazz. That's cool, that's cool. Well, so I got off the progressive rock thing fairly early and I became uh, pretty much a jazz policeman in a lot of ways, you know, ah, kind yeah. of a jazz boat. So you yeah. became devoted to jazz for a while? Well, I'm, I'm still devoted for jazz. It's more a tasting. There's just a whole bunch of stuff that I used to like that I don't like anymore and I know what I like and I'm old enough to not care, so I just, I like what I like. Right, right. You know? Cool. Uh, well, why don't we play another tune? Yeah, I don't know why I keep calling these hard tunes. Uh, I just, there's a discussion online about this. Uh, evidently, uh, Miles played this in C, uh, Conception, <coughs> and uh, sometimes George Sharon used to play in D, which I've never done. Do you want to do this one? or Yeah, one let's the other do ones? it. Let's do Conception. That's, okay. That sounds great to me. Don't make me play it in C or D, though. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll play this in this key. Okay. Uh, also, A-A-B-A. -A -A. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, should I play the head all the way through? Do you want yeah, to play the bridge again? Yeah, you take it. You take okay. It. See if I remember the bridge. Um, not too fast, but Please. not too slow. Good there? Yeah. One, 
Thank you. 
solid body guitars and stuff. Yeah. This, is, this is one of the latest uh, latest Warmoth builds and it's actually turned out quite nicely and it's just stock stuff. It's just an alder body and a, and a, a maple neck with rosewood fingerboard. I've been experimenting with things like short scale necks and mahogany bodies and ash bodies. Right. Trying to get that ultimate. And what's it like? Stuff. So what, what have you discovered from trying to discovered I'm an alder guy. I don't like traditional telly bridges for jazz. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely a rosewood fingerboard guy. I don't like maple fingerboards for jazz. Yeah. Um, if I was playing a different type, if I was trying to get a different type of thing, for me, I'm trying to kind of like get a sound that's smack dab in the middle <coughs> of, um, of Ed and Pat Metheny. And I'd be playing an arch top, except for the fact that I can't really rock out on the arch top if and when yeah. I have to. Um, uh, and I kind of got this neurotic thing that if I'm in a, especially in a small practice room, like at the colleges, and I hear the acoustic sound of the guitar rather than what's coming out of the speaker, uh, and it's not that sophisticated an acoustic sound, it kind of bugs my aesthetic. So I can't even play a th like a, a thin line, like a 335 without freaking out. Oh, Because really? I just hate the acoustic sound. Right. So I go for solid bodies. I'm trying to get Matheny's thing out of the solid body, yeah. um, which to me is kind of what Ed has always done. Yeah. And my sound is totally different than Ed's. I totally recognize that. Right. Um, Some of those uh, chords I heard you playing on that conception arrangement, though, I thought sounded reminiscent of Ed Bickert. Uh, well, you know, Ed's the king of... of, yeah. of playing that kind of stuff and incorporating chords so anytime yeah. I try to incorporate chords on a standard uh, that's my model right yeah right. definitely right but sorry to interrupt sound wise you know so you're kind of aimed at that smoothness of Matheny yeah the, the tone might be really similar to what Ed's guitar actually sounds like but my touch is way different than Ed's and, and mm -hmm. my attack is a lot harder right uh, Ed's touch is so soft and uh, and he gets he gets such an acoustic sound out of that telly um uh you know, I come close. I'm in the dark zone that I like to be in. I don't. I, I when I, I'm from the cool school. You know, from Jim Hall rolling all the yeah. treble off. Yeah. Um. I've always gravitated towards that when I'm playing jazz. Um. Uh. So I'm getting a nice dark sound out of out of this type of rig, and uh, I'm thinking these days, you know, everybody else sounds so so much hipper. Everybody's kind of turned their backs on that kind of sound in jazz. It's yeah. been kind of a, a thing. It's changed. Um, yeah. People are after more of an acoustic archtop kind of tone. I'm looking for ways to kind of brighten up my sound without losing the body, so I'm still kind of mm. experimenting. And what's this amplifier? Uh, it's an, well, not ancient, but from the 80s, late 80s, maybe early 90s, a Pierce G2R. Wow. Solid state. Okay. Um, how did I plug in the top? I never do that. Um, uh, I was using Pierce amps through the uh, 80s. Alan Holdsworth was kind of a, an endorser. Oh. Uh, Ronnie Montrose, who's a rock guy, was an, an endorsee. Mm -hmm. And Dan Pierce, the guy who invented these things, um, uh, his quest was to basically uh, come up with good sounding solid state amps. At the time it was common knowledge that solid state just kind of sucked. Right. And I think Dan's thing was trying to prove that to be wrong. So he was finding ways to incorporate MOSFETs in his, in, in his circuits. Mm -hmm. And as a jazz guy, you know guys like Ed and Lauren and you know a lot of especially Toronto guys gravitate towards um, uh, solid state amps like Rollins like and Oranges and Polytones. Right. So this is kind of smack dab in the middle. It's a solid state amp that's supposed to sound more tube-like. Mm -hmm. If you AB it next to a tube amp, uh, you'll notice differences, but it's, but it's musical sounding. Hmm. So I was playing a Pierce G1 through most of that time, and then I got into tube amps. I, I ended up getting a very sophisticated Mesa rig uh, in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and I ended up selling my Pierce, my head, that used to come in the same cabinet. I sold it to Reg, actually. Reg still owns it, uh, a G1. And every once in a while I ask him whether I can borrow it just to check it out, because... Um, after years of playing the Mesa stuff, I thought I had taken a wrong turn because I just wasn't digging my sound as much as I mm -hmm. had back in the old days. So I kind of wanted to recapture that. So I started looking for these online. I found two, uh, two Pierce heads, uh, 
one of them was in a pawn shop in Texas, and one of them was straight from eBay. So I've got a spare in the basement. So that's basically, that's why I take the Rex when I'm playing. Right. But then there's my Axe Effects rig. If I'm playing a gig where I want chorus or effects and stuff, I usually take that whole stuff. The so. Axe, okay. I think I've heard of that. That's No, I, I brought it over to one of the hangs. Maybe, yeah. maybe you weren't there. Maybe I wasn't there at that Remember I brought over a sophisticated digital thing, and everybody said, yeah, it does sound like a two-man. Mm. It's in my bedroom right now, because it usually sits here. Right, right. Um, uh, it's it's remarkable. I mean, it uh, the guy spends hours and hours basically taking um, measurements from mm -hmm. all these classic tube amps, uh, and he knows enough about digital modeling that he can actually make it sound right uh, digitally. So, uh, when the pods first came out, you know, yeah. the Line Six stuff, it looked like a great promise. Wow, if you can get all that stuff modeled, especially. The, the thing that the modelers can do that most other rigs, even tube amp rigs, can't do is um, make it so that you can have tube amp, dis uh, sorry, uh, power tube distortion, power amp distortion before your effects. Mm -hmm. If you're using a, a small uh, tube uh, amp mm -hmm. with maybe a 30 or 20 watt power section and you want to put chorus uh, in that, you always put it in front of the distortion so then the chorus gets distorted. So right. the thing about this is you've got all your fancy effects, just like they would do in the studio. You put a mic on a distorted amp, and then you put all the fancy effects on it, mm. right? So I think they can only really do that in modeling. So right. that's one of the reasons I was attracted to it was because of that, and also because of the signal path things, you know, whether you use a buffer, if you're using pedals, your tone gets all sucked out. The Axe takes care of all that shit, and it just it sounds as good as all my Mesa stuff ever sounded, so it, it's just easier it's in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. It's expensive, and I'm, I'm, I realize I'm in a very lucky position that I can actually afford it, so. Yeah. yeah. Nice. So I wanted to ask you, um, what are you practicing these days? What's, uh, what are you working uh, on? I can't. My, own, my general malaise about being a musician these days, especially a jazz musician, is that I'm not playing enough gigs. For mm -hmm. me, um, I'm the kind of guy that gets shit ready when there's a deadline. If I know something's coming up, I've got a gig, I have to play these tunes. I mean, even this little uh, podcast we're doing yeah. here, I, I spent some time preparing just deciding what I wanted to play. Yeah. Um, so uh, my trio gig was the last time, <laughs> a month and a half ago, that I, that I was really practicing heavily. Mm -hmm. um, I have a hard time just keeping a practice schedule up when there's nothing happening. I, I know that's bad. I know it's not helpful. I'm the same uh, way. It, it's the way I am, though. So, yeah. Um, uh, what do I put? Stuff I practice now is still kind of stems from what I did with this guy Charlie Binacos. Uh, I was taking these correspondence lessons with Charlie, who's a great, uh, I'll call him a jazz techniques teacher. People call him a theory teacher, but they're basically just techniques. Mm -hmm. um, who's out of Boston. Uh, basically, he was in Revere, I think, maybe not Boston. Um, uh, Mike Stern studied with him, a lot of guys studied with him. He's like great friends with Berganzi, they're just kind of part of that crowd. He hasn't gone out and played, he's a great piano player, but he hasn't played live in, in many, many years. He dedicated himself to teaching, kind of like what Frank Falco did here. Mm -hmm. So at any rate, Charlie has all this material that I was uh, studying with him via correspondence lessons. My last record was called Thanks Charlie because I was uh, exploring his, his stuff. Um, uh, uh, so when I do sit down and practice, uh, since you know, this was back in early 2000, uh, 1999, 2000, I was studying with Charlie via correspondence, hmm. and I'm still working on that shit. I'm still trying to work right. out the ramifications of it. Right, and so what's the nature of A couple of, of very simple ideas, but in order to be able to use them as an improviser, you just have to woodshed them for like, you know, a long, long time. Right. So the first installment of lessons was about um, uh, two, two basic things. Uh, how you can use uh, chromatic approaches to outline uh, any particular seventh chord. You know, if you're outlining C major seventh, you're using various chromatic approaches into right. notes of C major seventh. Let's slow that down, that one down again. Well, I'm just noodling around in seventh position. Right. And I'm playing very badly. Enclosures, right. double chromatic approaches from above or below. So any of the notes of C major seventh can be applied, approached that way. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're playing on C major seventh, your lines will sound strong in C major seventh. Mm -hmm. But the notes of C major seventh also fit onto a whole bunch of other chords as chord sounds. So if you're playing on A minor seventh, that same line would work. If you were playing on F major seventh, the same line would work. Because all these notes are chord sound on that chord. This is five, seven, nine, eleven, sharp eleven. Uh, so uh, you get more money notes when you apply it to other chords. Right. Yeah. So uh, 
uh, or the money notes change when you apply the yeah, chords. Yeah. So Charlie, uh, the, the, the most novel thing that came out of that particular lesson was that Charlie was suggesting to do that same type of thing for outlining C major seventh while the band's playing E flat seventh. So it's unusual to have both the thirteenth and the flat thirteenth in the same uh, chord voicing, mm. but it's not that unusual to have it in a line. hear that functionally resolve somewhere to understand how, how right. it fit in. He'd also say, try that same line on E7. On E7, that's the 13th. So we had all these applications of it. So it started with major 7th chords and these chromatic approaches, and then it went into every other type of 7th chord, finding ways to superimpose that. So dominant 7ths, uh, uh, if you could do dominant 7th arpeggios, like a G7 arpeggio uh, sounds great on F major 7th, the G7 arpeggio sounds great on D flat 7th, you know, all the, all the diminished scale stuff. But yeah. there are some other ones in there. Uh, G7 sounds, should, uh, well, yeah, you get the point. Yeah. Um, yeah so there was really a whole, basically 14 or so lessons based on that, 14 different 7th chords being superimposed over everything else. Mm -hmm. So that was installment number one. That was topic number one. Topic number two was basically triad pairs, uh, which he called bitonal pendulums. Mm -hmm. um, and when we got into the, the bitonal pendulums that weren't built in thirds, he called them non-tertian bitonal pendulums, which <laughs> okay. is always fun to say. Yeah. Uh, but basically, he started out with uh, two triads. E the first lesson in triad pairs was uh, E flat and F together. Uh -huh. um, and he would have me practice these patterns just to get the facility. You know, that kind of thing. And yeah. I would work it out in position or across the fretboard and stuff. And then he'd say, well, those two triads sound great on F7 sus4. Those two triads sound great on E flat 7th altered. Mm. Uh, that kind of stuff. So then you'd try using those things. So basically, Everything he was giving me was a reorganization of what uh, uh, some guys at Berkeley used to call chord sound. If mm. you add up all the chord tones and all the extensions that fit a chord, you can call that an entity, a chord sound. Like on, on major seventh chord, it's the Lydian scale. Maybe there's a couple other notes you might squeeze in there. And then the idea was to start reorganizing that into other seventh chords or into triad pairs. Mm. So basically, it was all about not playing void notes because you were always playing stuff that was consonant on the chord at the moment. Wow, okay. Right? And in some sense, I already knew how to do that before I studied with him. But I hadn't gone to the next level of organizing it into other seventh chords or organizing it into other triad pairs and finding the intervals there. Mm -hmm. So it's basically taking a, a, a large set of pitches and limiting it in various various ways. Mm -hmm. And do you have a favorite like a group of chromatic moves and triad moves that you apply to these different? Yeah, as you're practicing the stuff that Charlie was showing me, uh, there's not that many things that come out of it that I really gravitated towards that I really liked the sound of. Right. The ones that I did like the sound of, kind of, uh, I made a mental note, and, and some of them I, I, I would shit it more than others. You and probably they, and they become my licks. Yeah. Right. And you probably found them on recordings and stuff that you had heard or just come into your head. And... I don't do as much lifting as a lot of guys. Right. Um, but osmosis, I mean, just like, you know. Yeah, if yeah. you listen to lots of music and you're practicing lots of music and you compare what you're playing to what you're hearing other people do, obviously there's some cross pollination, mm. even if you're not actively trying to listen. Uh, or actively trying to lift what people are doing, but uh, you know I can I can maybe count three or four licks that I play on a regular basis that came out of the Charlie thing. If that's is that kind of what you're yeah yeah I'm just, yeah yeah I'm just wondering about so like, for all that work very little has actually come out of it, but it's been good discipline. And right. if I was really dedicated to it, it could really open up the instrument. I, I can see that because he was forcing me to do things that just my current my technique of then could not accomplish. So I had to rethink fingering. I had to. Rethink all sorts of things. So it was all in all, it was a good thing. Mm. Whether I played them as licks or not, whether I got anything concrete out of it, there was there was abstract stuff that was worth taking out of it. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. Cool. And uh, yeah. So why don't we uh, why don't we play something else? Let me just. Uh, what do we got? Going here. More talking on this tape than the. Uh, I'm not sure if I want to do my original. Uh, we can try it. Uh, it's. It, it's a nice slow, slow groove. Uh, most people I play this with can't seem to keep the tempo steady, so that when the head comes back in, it's, it's a little bit weird. But you want to try it anyways? Did you look at yeah. this at home? Yeah, I did take a quick gander at it. Okay. So the only thing that we have to talk about is the ending, which uh -huh. is basically uh, last time through the head after all the blowing, uh, we take the coda, which is just an extension of the last four bars. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a pause on the B flat chord, mm -hmm. which I'll do a little cadenza, and then there's an E flat seven. So it's pretty straight ahead okay. this chart. I've had a couple of charts for this tune, and some of them haven't been that strong. Well, let's see what happens. Let's do it. And I try to play this one in octaves, and I'm terrible at octaves, so let's see what happens. All right. I'll give you um, two bars. One, two, one, two, three.
tied around the waist I think that's come back around I was too old for that (laughs) so uh, I wanted to ask you before we go Joey uh, do you have any advice for young musicians a lot of young musicians listen to this podcast and and I know you you teach a lot of younger players so uh, what do you tell them well at at Humber uh, I kind of take on a particular um, goal as a teacher which is uh, and it's weird when I have an advanced student come in the door the, the the very first, the very first day. But my, I, I see my goal is just being able to uh, bring these people to the point where they can play over changes. I don't mm-hmm. see any other inspirational thing. I studied with some very inspirational players when I was coming up, but I've never considered myself to be an inspiring person. And anybody who <laughs> thinks that I am inspiring, there's something wrong with them. Oh, no. <laughs> so uh, I just try to do reading, writing, arithmetic. Uh, learn how to learn how to uh, play arpeggios. Learn how to uh, play the scales that go with the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, learn your drop two inversions and the voice leading. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you do with that stuff is up to you. I don't try to teach the creative process or, mm-hmm. or any that kind of stuff. Although it comes into it. If someone's trying to plug the scale in on that chord and they're not being successful, then I'll say, well, try this or I'll play something. I'll say, I'm using the exact same thing and the same fingering that you're playing. And I came up with this. So if you keep working at it, maybe you'll be able to come up with something good too. So a yeah. lot of guys kind of give up too soon um, and just go to doing lifts, which is all cool because if you can, if you sound good, you sound good. I mean, sounding good is its own reward. Hmm. But for me, understanding it is really important too so that I can use that on something else I want to play. Um, so I, I give a fairly technical approach to, to that. So I'm, I'm dealing with a particular type of student is the thing. Um, I'm not getting kids, and I, even when I teach privately, I don't. Um, I shy away from beginners. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not teaching kids Green Day tunes or, or the latest thing that's on the radio. Right. Uh, so as a teacher, all I'm really trying to do is get guys up to speed with uh, uh, knowing how to uh, uh, lift a tune off a record, uh, mm-hmm. uh, knowing something that sounds uh, that like it doesn't suck to play right. over the change. So fundamentals. Fundamentals. You're always fundamentals. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, Although everybody's definition of what's fundamental is different these days, but I've got, sure. I've, basically I'm giving them exposure to the Berkeley guitar course that I did. That's right. all I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to put too much of my own thing on top of that. Right, right. And how about uh, professionally? Like, uh, do you have any advice for for young students? Uh, don't do it. That's the one that uh, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> but any, any any give any, up. <laughs> any moral teacher should be trying to impress that on a student at the beginning. Mick Goodrick did that with me. Actually, the first lesson with Mick was weird. He had me write out two lists uh, of ten things. Uh, ten things I thought were important to be a good player, mm-hmm. uh, or. It might have been phrased differently, or to be a good musician, or, mm-hmm. or to be a successful musician, maybe that was it. Uh, and 10 things for a successful life, and then we kind of compare the two, two uh. lists to see where that comes from. Now, Mick was in a really um, uh, psychological headspace at the time. He was, uh, he was doing some kind of psychotherapy. He was into Sufism and, yeah. and all kind of stuff. So, well, from um, reading his book, I get a sense he's a very spiritual kind of guy. Yeah. yeah. And I kind of took all that with a grain of salt, because I was there for the, the technical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned so much from him in that in that area that uh, that's the basis of everything that I do, and I just I'm just trying to pass it on. Mm. So. That's beautiful, man. That's cool. And uh, one last thing, any gigs you want to let people know about? Coming up, yeah. 
My I, the only thing I have booked is the next time we're playing with John McLeod's band. Uh, That's a great band. It is a great band. I'm, great I'm band. honored to be in that rhythm section. I'm actually surprised they haven't gotten rid of me yet. But we're there the last Monday of this month. I can check the Rex dates. Hotel, right? Yeah, the Rex in and, Toronto. Yeah, and then uh, we have our one jazz festival gig with that band at the end of June. So the next gig is May 29th. Uh, and then after that is the Jazz Festival gig, which is June 26th. And as far as anything else I'm doing jazz-wise with uh, public attendance, I'll have to keep you posted. You have to go to my website to see what okay. comes in. JoeyGoldstein.com? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I was getting some uh, gigs backing up. Laura Sonnicki used me on like three or four gigs. Oh, she's a great singer. She's yeah. a great singer. Yeah. Um, uh, there was a period about a month and a half ago where I was getting called for a couple a uh, couple extra things. I got a jobber with Jack McFadden. So I'm still up for doing stuff like that. But yeah. see, the thing with me is because I've spent so many uh, uh, full seasons at the Shaw Festival now in Niagara on the Lake, I'm kind of off of everybody's radar. Right. Either that or they hate me. <laughs> no. <laughs> I can't tell. Yeah. But uh, the phone's not ringing all that much. Actually, there's a. Well, check your email because yeah. nobody's calling anybody anymore. Yeah. <laughs> good, good point. Yeah. There's a tune that we actually do with, with John's band called Phone Don't Ring Jack. <laughs> nice. Anyhow, this is great, man. You sound Thank great. You, you, sound, you sound great. Thanks for taking the time to do this. I'm sure. glad we can make it happen. I, and, uh, I'm not even going to listen to them. I'll just let you put them up. You, know? I was gonna, you were going to give me executive approval on these tunes, but we'll just put them up words and all. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Joey. Thank you. See you later.